Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations on the sounds of speech. And I'm Eric Armstrong. With me today is my friend Phil, Phil Thompson. How you doing, Eric? I'm good. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's uh, it's kind of sunny here. Uh, it's terribly, terribly cold. It's like 60 degrees outside. Oh, <laughs> we, we had uh, wind chill today of minus 5 Celsius, Ooh. which means... Uh, about uh, 28. Yummy. It is enough to make one say, brr. Brr. Oh, why would we say that? Because we're going to talk about er, our sounds, and we're continuing from last week. Last week we talked about our overview of our sounds. So this week we're going to focus in on consonant R exclusively. Yes. And uh, we have a plan, and that's to focus in on all the articulations of R that sort of come to mind when we talk about R. And we're going to limit ourselves as much as we can to those that occur before vowels. Right. Um, and they might occur intervocalically between two vowels, yeah. but that's still before the second vowel. So uh, we're, we're going to focus on those. And we needed a game plan, a way to kind of go from one sound to the next. And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't want to write a lot of show notes. So we are going to follow along with our friends from Wikipedia. Um, and that's not such a bad thing, I don't think, to follow along with Wikipedia, because they've made a great effort to make things more intelligible, easier to follow. Yeah. Um, and so the page they should go to if they are near the Internet. Yes, and I, I think that we'll try to keep this fairly straightforward and clear. But if you want to follow along, you should go to Rhotic Consonant on Wikipedia. And we're just going to use that as our framework. We're not going to necessarily follow or even agree with everything that gets said there. Indeed. I actually wanted to mention something about Wikipedia use that uh, is something that I've been doing lately and I think is a really useful thing. Go to Wikipedia, look at the information, but always look at the discussion. The, there's, there are two tabs. There's the article and then there's the discussion about the article. And what What you'll find is a range of disagreements, some of them erudite and some of them uh, naive, but the discussion will tell you a little bit something about how people are thinking about it and what you might want to question yourself. And so I'm concerned always that we get pretty deep into things here, and that's a concern that's shared by a lot of people on Wikipedia pages. One of the most common objections, in fact, to linguistics Wikipedia pages is, this is not for every man. It's too complex. And yet, how do you describe something clearly if you don't go into excruciating detail. So it, it's a useful practice, I think, and it helps to take some of the sting off of the fact that it's Wikipedia. <laughs> At least you're keeping an open mind. Exactly. Um, so, Phil, if we're going to tackle these rhotic consonants, mm -hmm. uh, then people probably want to be on the at the types section of the page. Yes. Um, and 
They don't start with the sounds that you and I use every day. They start with Correct. trills. Any idea why they would pick trill to start with? Well, there are, there are a couple of reasons that you... Uh, and I think we did a rough version of this in our last show. Trills are the most constricted form, I suppose you could say, because the articulators are coming to a complete closure and then opening and then coming back and then opening and then coming back. So that's one reason to start with the trills. Another reason that you might want to start with trills is that there's at least some argument that historically many forms of R that exist today are began historically with a trilled R. And then the final argument, I think, for uh, making R the first one is it, it's by far the most common realization of this class of rhotics. Right. So more languages in the world use trildar than anything else. Exactly. Right. Uh, now, I suppose that we talked a little bit about this last time, but it's worth repeating. The notion of what makes things rhotic, uh, what is it that makes the... How can we put these things together in a category? Uh, I'm looking at an article here uh, by somebody whose name I can't pronounce, uh, Piotr Gasiorowski, uh, sounds Polish to me, uh, an article called A Shibboleth Upon Their Tongues, Early English R Revisited. And so he gives a list, and this is a list that uh, we ran through last time, that these articulations range through really a staggering number of variations. We still call them rhotics. And uh, this guy is not satisfied with any of the reasons that people give for classing things as rhotics. There are two that I think are pretty compelling, and one of them is a sort of scientific one, and that is third formant lowering. Right. And we, I think, talked about that last time. That yes, sure. There's a sort of or there's a sort of bunching in articulation. There's a sort of uh, acoustic effect that happens pretty much throughout all of these sounds. Uh, a little scoop in the spectrogram uh, where that little formant goes down. Um, another article I was looking at showed that the preceding consonant, if there is one, goes down even further in those instances? Sure. So if we had a word, I think the, the example they used was a word like every everyone. Exactly. That the V of every actually has more R-ishness to it than the R going into the E, every. Uh, and so we're yeah. actually anticipating or predicting that R quality because of the way the V has been modified. Exactly. And and that's an important thing to remember that most segments, warning technical word, most sounds are co-articulated in some way because there's some transition between one and the next. They're not just discrete units of sound. And so we call a thing an R, but it behaves differently depending on the context. In any case, this lowered third formant is a nice scientific-looking way of describing them. The other way of describing what, why rhotics are the same, why they belong in a category together, is one that this Polish guy objects to, uh, and that is, historically, 
they seem to come from the same source. Hmm. So that if you trace your way up the language tree, you find words containing this sound, and the sounds have changed, but the word origins are the same. So if you look at the word red, and I think we talked about this last time, the various words for red in various languages have R's in them. They have that sound, but it's realized in very different ways. So we can discover the origins and that makes it a class. Hmm. <laughs> but it's a pretty broad class and uh, finding a sort of fundamental similarity, really the only argument I think is the acoustic one, to say that they're really the same. And that languages spell them with the same letter a lot of the time. Exactly, and that's a mark of the history. And often when we're coaching people who are going to have an R different than the sort of everyday R that we're used to, we are going to be encountering the that other language's interpretation of that symbol R. So they see it in the spelling of an English word, they use their R sound to articulate it. And that brings me to another point that uh, we're going to save for next time, but we had a correspondent who asked us about the incidence of pre-vocalic and post-vocalic R, uh, and I have not succeeded in my research on that point yet. Me either. But what she's pointing to is that the R in it is a far, far better thing I do, and run rabbit run is spelled the same way but it, depending on the accent those two kinds of r can be pronounced very differently yes we'll talk much more about that next time but for now we do have to recognize that even in the same language the spelled r can behave differently yes. so back to our wikipedia page that mm. probably gave people enough time to google that and yes <laughs> So the first one is trills. And let's start with the alveolar trill. Uh, I think, again, we talked about this a little bit last time. An alveolar trill is formed by the bracing of the sides of the tongue against the teeth or against the alveolar ridge on the sides to create an opening where the tip and the sort of rim of the tongue can close off at the alveolar ridge or post-alveolarly and begin a cycle of repetition. And we will not go back into the Bernoulli effect, but that's what's happening. And it is pronounced And that's the voiced form. We could imagine an unvoiced form, although I don't know of any languages where that occurs, but I bet if you have that Wikipedia page in front of you... I do. Welsh. There you ra, go. Ra, ra, ra. So that would be written R-H. So a name like Hronda uh, would be have a voiceless trill. Terrific. And uh, the other thing about the trill... Ah, the phonetic symbol. And what we're going to try to do is, as we go through here, talk about the articulation, the occurrence, and the phonetic symbol of all of these sounds. Mm -hmm. And other cool things that occur to us along the way. So this trill is transcribed with an R. <laughs> right side up R. A right side up, regular R. And that can be really confusing 
because that's also very commonly the symbol that's used for the phoneme R. We've talked about phonemes and their realizations before, their allophones before, but we could do a little bit of a touch on that. Do you want to give us the quick definition? Well, my, my layman's definition is that a phoneme is the idea of a sound. Uh, allophones are all the variations of the actual thing that comes out of people's mouths, and those variations may be fairly different. So we might write one symbol to represent all the possible ways that people might articulate R, and we could use the the most common representation, the R that we know, uh, to represent a, a very firm R, or a fricative R, or a trilled R. We could just use one symbol to represent all of those possibilities. And that's generally what a dictionary is doing when it uses a phonetic symbol, is that it's using it to represent the phoneme. Uh, you could use any accent with that dictionary to interpret those phonemic uses of the symbols. So, um, yep, go ahead. Another way of thinking about it is that it's the letter. And the letter R in many, many languages, in, in if they use the Roman alphabet, they most likely use that regular standing up printed R that has a, a bar with a little hook moving to the right. Yes. Lowercase r. Lowercase r. And we talked about the history of that last time, what the symbol was and how it got to be, but that's that's the letter, and that's also the symbol for the phoneme. You'll recognize in a piece of written text if it's got slashes on either side of it, and I think that Wikipedia follows this practice as well. They do. Uh, they're talking about the idea of r and using that symbol when it's between slashes, to talk about all the R's. And so if you talk about, let's say, Scottish R, you can say, slash R slash in Scottish is realized as bracket R bracket. The phoneme of R <clears throat> is realized as a trilled R, and those brackets indicate the specific indication of how it's pronounced the phonetic realization. Is that clear? Yep. So, alveolar trill occurs alveolar in trill. Scottish, occurs in Italian, occurs in Spanish, uh, probably a page and a half there of languages, yes? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I would say that uh, that alveolar or coronal trill, sometimes they'll call it that, um, yes. it, uh, uh, that, that <laughs> trill in, when we think of something like Scottish, it often has kind of like the dictionary form of it. Yes. Right. I'm doing Scottish full bore, trailing my R's, but a lot of the time it turns into a fricative. So, um, that, uh, often what starts as a trill may reduce into another form that we will hear later. And I think that Wells uh, describes that in Scottish as the declamatory form that, uh, in a sort of theatrical way, uh, the trilled R is used more frequently in languages, and there's some softer version that's used in conversation. Yeah, I would think of it as an emphatic usage of it. And frequently, uh, we think of sort of the history of English theater, uh, I, I think that uh, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, actors were taught to use a trill, an alveolar trill, as a means of emphasizing words that began with a stressed yes. R. 
Romeo, Romeo. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Yeah, could you hear the acting? There was some acting going on there. I, I smelled some. Mm. Exactly. In fact, I may get membership in Schmachter's Schmequity for that acting there. Uh, okay. I, I, your card is coming in the mail. <laughs> so the, there's quite a long list, and it's interesting to me that Esperanto is one of the languages on this list. And Esperanto is intending to be an artificial language that sort of encompasses lots of other languages. And so it was wise for them to choose the trill as their R of choice. Yes. Just for those people who are following along on Wikipedia, to get to that list of languages, we had to click on alveolar trill. Yes. And that took us to where that list of languages is. So as we go along, we'll try to remember to remind you to click on certain words if you're following along. Terrific. Um, uh, so do we want to talk about the uvular trill? Yeah, that's a terrific idea. Uh, the uvular trill is the same manner of articulation. That is to say, you have to brace some things and have a bit free to flap in the wind. And the thing flapping in this case is the uvula, or the whole back edge of the velum from which the uvula descends. And that gives you... Rrr. Lovely. What a good... <laughs> so, ra initially, or intervocalically, ra. I, I have to say, I think I've had a huge advantage in that when I was a little kid, I lived in a place where I would have been beaten up if I couldn't <laughs> say that. And uh, the the threat of violence that is, there's always a, a whiff of that in the air whenever I make my ra. It uh, concentrates the mind wonderfully, I'm sure. It does. It does. It really does. Um, the... Uh, so if it's the manner is a trill and the place is uvular, and mm -hmm. it's the phonation is, of course, voiced. Yes, and I'm looking right. on the list of occurrence of this, and I don't see any unvoiced versions. Oh. Now, uh, um, sometimes in some languages, it's represented by double R. When, when, we, when we had the alveolar trill, if we think of Spanish, for instance, mm -hmm. double R, perro, gives you the trill. In Portuguese, double R gives you the uvular trill, ra. So carro, we get that uh, trill. I think that uh, I, I want to go down the pathway of unvoiced versions of this, but let's uh, first deal with the phonetic symbol. Okay. Small cap. R. So small capital letter R. Yeah. Uh, what a small capital means that it's the same height as uh, a lowercase letter like X would be. Yeah. And and it's like a capital R in its shape. Indeed. So, uh, yes, it's definitely used in. It, what we're given here is it's listed in French as a dialectical, uh, a dialectal. Sorry, not dialectical. Uh, variation, and in German as well. Uh, and I think I might have used this example last time, that in uh, nightclub singing and in uh, theatrical versions of German, you do get... Uh, you, yes. you could expect Lotte to make a... Or, uh, or Edith Piaf, right? Exactly. La vie en rose. And it's a great singing sound. It's a great sort of yummy theatrical sound, but you can imagine it does not occur with great frequency in casual speech. Right. Now, there is a 
uh, you could say it's a form of lenition, a form of lightning, that you move from trill to fricative. Uh, and perhaps to approximate. Exactly. And, and I also think the devoicing is part of that as well. So we're going to come back to these sounds in a little bit, but in Brazilian Portuguese, this R sound really becomes almost an H. Um, I'm thinking of the, the word churrascaria. Uh, the ha in that is a double R. Uh, it's the place where you get meat on a stick. Uh, ah, and right. it's super yummy. And so you can see that it started as churrascaria and moved to churrascaria, churrascaria, and then to churrascaria. So <clears throat> the devoicing so, there came along with becoming a fricative. So meat on a stick places, are they always Brazilian or are there other I think Portuguese? Because there's a big Portuguese community in Toronto, but they're, they're Portuguese from Portugal or the Azores. And I uh, think there it's are lots Brazil- of churrascarias oh. in Toronto, but I've always assumed that they oh, would have instead of churrascaria. That's really fascinating. You I'll should have to, go down I'll and have, have to a go meal. and f- have a meal, eat some meat. <coughs> well, that's research that I look forward to. Um, and okay, I so will more likely have trill. Brazilians, and so I'll go there. Okay. All right. Um, now, when we talk about this trill at the back, mm-hmm. sometimes people call that trill a guttural R. Yeah. And that's actually something else, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, and there is a link on, on one of these pages uh, to guttural R. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes known as French R. Yes, exactly. And this notion that German and French are guttural languages, uh, it's a term that I think that I've just rejected because it's too impressionistic. Uh, it's it's about feelings and not about acoustics. Uh, but yeah, there is a link to a Wikipedia page, which is guttural R, and you could search in Wikipedia for yeah, that. Yeah, and then they go on to say that the uvular trill, uvular fricatives, alveolar trill, alveolar tap, they'll all be recognized as the phoneme R. And they, they don't ultimately explain that this so-called guttural R is kind of like a a general broad term for yeah. y- back of the mouth R. Guttural generally means back of the th- mouth in the throat in a vague general kind yeah. of way. So that that ultimately doesn't seem to be that much that helpful to us where we're trying to be more specific. I mean, it, it's true that there are languages that have more articulations further back in the vocal tract. Right. If you think of something like Hebrew, mm-hmm. where you get a lot of the, the right in the back with the, yeah. the uvular trill, there is a lot of kind of back of the throat kind of quality to it. And the placement of the accent feels like it sits in your throat. And yeah, that's, I suppose, why many English speakers who are talking about guttural sounds are generally speaking about them as different and harsh and that's one reason why I'm a little shy about the term. But if all we're talking about is generally towards the back of the throat or b- b- towards the back of the vocal tract, then terrific. 
Yeah, I think you're, you're pointing at a thing that the fact is that there is a bias against guttural sounds, yeah. so-called guttural sounds in English. And so often people say guttural with a little bit of a sneer, <laughs> yes. like a, a distaste. Oh, it's so and, guttural. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Such guttural speech. Ugh. Um, and that, you know, of course, here we are, the lovers of all things speechy. So we, we, uh, we celebrate the sounds in the back of the mouth. There are, I should probably say, obviously, other sounds that are made towards the back of the oral cavity that aren't considered rhotics. And I think a good example of this is in Afrikaans, there's a kh sound, but their version of R, their phoneme R, is r. And so you could have a word like, it's spelled G-R-O-O-T, chruot, which is kh, r, uot. Chruet. Chruet. Which is, a, I think it's a fabulous word. In, and it's fabulous in its double articulation that you're doing back of the mouth, front of the mouth. But also it has a certain, if we want to apply feelings to sounds, it feels awesome. Yes. Gutsy. It, it reminds me of my party trick from last oh, week's absolutely. episode. So. Doing People. multiple articulations simultaneously. All right. Yes. So, so let's just clarify. There are other trills, too, that aren't considered R's, right? A bilabial trill exactly. isn't an R. And uh, the raspberry, which isn't phonemic, that is, it isn't used in any of the world's languages, that's your tongue stuck between your two lips, so lingualabial. That also isn't – it is a trill, but it's certainly not an R. Uh, and so we could go back to our – definition and say those things aren't ours because they don't include this third formant lowering yes. or we could simply say that they don't come from a history of other kinds of ours and so they don't get spelled that way and they just have a different pathway yes but wouldn't it be a lot of fun to make a new form of english where they were yes right my name could be epic <laughs> it is epic man <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think one thing that we might... Uh, I'm developing a hypothesis here that uh, certainly the lingual labial trill does not occur in languages. And I think that might be because it requires quite a bit of airflow. Mm -hmm. uh, uvular trills, voiced uvular trills, require less airflow... Uh, than unvoiced uvular trills, <laughs> I kind of can't even do it. Um, and so, as we devoice things, they become less trilly, more fricative. And certainly, the progression in Brazilian Portuguese is towards them becoming uh, losing anything that we would think of as rhotic at all. They go from right. to so. There's some sort of loss of the idea of roticity with the weakening that has to do with devoicing as well as losing the sort of periodicity of trilling that's not even a hypothesis because it's incoherent i apologize <laughs> okay so let's let's keep this bus a rolling yes, please. let's uh, let's talk about taps and flaps Excellent. we talked about taps last week mm -hmm. um but we didn't really talk about flaps. So uh, so let's the, give a baseline definition of what's the difference between a tap and a flap. 
And I think the IPA makes matters difficult because yeah. they use the same symbol to represent both possibilities. So, uh, and they're in the same row of the IPA chart. So a tap, strictly speaking, is the action of the tongue going from behind the lower front teeth up behind the upper front teeth, making a single strike and coming back down. Um, so it does a, it's like a, a single action up, down. A flap, to, to my mind, has almost like a sort of whip-like or circular action where the tongue is retracted, and then the underside of the tongue does a kind of whipping on, and hits the uh, usually the alveolar ridge, but could be other parts of the mouth. You could also say uh, that, that a, a tap returns to, from whence it came, and a flap is hitting the articulation on its way to somewhere else. Mm. And, and so, so your, your definition really tells me you've taken at least one tap dance class. Uh, <laughs> because tap, tap, tap is different than flap, uh, which Blah. has that sort of looser... Uh, arc of movement but i i well a tap dancing flap is a double sound (laughs) exactly so So let's not bring that in Uh, but i think that we could also just say that a tap is uh in a straight line and back rather than in this curving path and i think whipping is the right way to talk about it yeah um so uh the tap that's most commonly used it's sort of the symbol for it looks like a lowercase r, except the vertical bar that's on the left of a lowercase r is removed. It's just the hooking part that goes to the right. Yeah, which is why it's sometimes called a fish hook. And the the little extra bit that hangs off the left of a regular r uh, is a serif. And I don't know if we've ever used that term before. Maybe we have. Uh, and so it's sort of a sans serif R, but it also begins its curving earlier. If you were to take a, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a sans serif font, Lucida Grand, uh, that R looks a little different because it goes... Lucida Grande is actually uh, a sans serif font. Something like Times Roman, Times New Roman, that's a serif font. And so... We couldn't say that the sans serif font is the same as the alveolar tap. Uh, it's more curvy than that. And again, if you're looking on the Wikipedia page, you'll see that image of it. So, the articulation of it is ara, ara, ara. And it's definitely used in languages that have a trilled form. It's used as the sort of weak form of that. And I would say that in English, typically, it's either used as a replacement for T, which is a very different thing, yes. I find, or it's used very briefly in a word like veri, so it's going into an unstressed syllable, so it's between two syllables, and it, it's very rarely used initially, might be used as part of a consonant cluster, uh, try, that kind of thing. Yes, it... Um, it um... I'm going to take issue with that, and then uh, you'll take issue with me. Uh, Go for it. It's certainly used in initial positions in English when it's a Scotsman speaking English. Uh, So any language that has the trilled form could easily have a tapped form in initial positions. So it's 
like your discussion of lenition reducing things towards friction, we might also have a reduction from trill to a single stroke trill yeah. uh, tap. So red, red, uh, run, run. And uh, I think that it's another case for uh, looking at how a rhotic and a plosive are different. We've talked about this last time. Plosives do have more buildup of pressure behind them. But there's also uh, probably a concomitant arishness in the back of the tongue. So if I say better, 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 I might be more likely to use a tap in the word better than I am in betting. Uh, because I'm not moving towards another R. But I, I think that I probably very frequently in the word betting use a tap. Again, to reinforce the difference between a tap and a stop or a stop plosive is that the the tap is so brief that there's barely a closure at all. And so the amount of air pressure that can build up behind a tap is much more limited. And so the moment of uh, stop is much shorter, much briefer. So I think we've done our, our tap. Uh, we don't have a uvular tap. And that's sort of a, it's a gap in the phonetics, but it's a, there's a very good reason I can't think of a language that uses a one-off uvular tap. And I I think it's a matter of uh, timing that you can't move your back of tongue and uvula abruptly enough Mm -hmm. to make it uh, seem like a tap. All right, I think we better move into the flaps. Okay. Now, these don't often appear in English. No, and they don't appear very f- in, in a lot of languages. No, very few. So there's essentially three uh, flaps, the alveolar lateral flap. So lateral, we remember from when we talked about L, is that's when the center line of the tongue is going to touch the roof of the mouth and the sides remain free pulled in slightly so that the sound can escape in a, in a lateral manner. And the medial uh, pathway down the center of the mouth is still closed off by the tip of the tongue against the alveolar ridge. Right. And so this alveolar lateral flap, that is, tongue tip against the alveolar ridge and it stays there, and the sides moving from one position to another, hit the articulators, so you get agla, agla, agla. How do you think I did on that? I think you did well, agla, agla. So there is a brief closure of the whole of the tongue and the sides kind of whip past And you can hear that it sort of sounds like a D and it sort of sounds like an L. Yes, if we did it slowly, it would sound like we were saying adala. Exactly. Adla, adla, and that's a little bit different. Adla and agla, adla, agla, and it's really about how much pressure is built up and the sort of looseness of that arc of motion of the articulator. So, the languages in which this occurs are, (laughs) I'm going to go from least, uh, the one I know least, to the one I know most, and that's not very much. So, Iwaja, I don't even know where that's spoken. Wayu, 
I have no idea where that's spoken. And Japanese. And you'll... Yes. If you look at the discussion on this page, and this is the Wikipedia page, Alveolar Lateral Flap, I believe that there's a little bit of skepticism from people about it occurring in these other languages. And so Hmm. we're really left with the Japanese... And the word that they give on the page here is what you and I might call ramen, which is, let me see if I can do it, ramen, ramen. Ramen. Well, you, you don't let it affect the ah. Really, have to get off it very quickly. Ramen. Ramen. And it's a very long ah. La ramen. Ah, terrific. Oh ah. yeah, I see. There's a length. And the, the great thing is, there's also a little speaker beside the word, and you can hear a native speaker saying it. And the challenge is that the that uh, uh, alveolar lateral flap is so quick that you you might miss it. So. Put your headphones on. Always the best way to hear a, a, a difficult sound. Maybe you want to save that file and pull it into an audio processing application, and then you can slow it down, and you'd hear that sound a little bit better. Small footnote, uh, that might be Audacity, which is free, or the amazing Slowdowner, which is also free in its trial form, uh, or something like Cool Edit or Audition, which do a much better job of slowing things down, but you have to pay for them. Uh, on the Mac, there's an application called Coda, which is designed for helping people learn how to play guitar riffs. Cool. does a great job, job of slowing things down. Also available for iOS, but it doesn't handle MP3s very well at the moment. It, it's struggling with MP3s. I think Amazing Slowdowner is cross-platform as well. Yeah, it's made by the ah, same great. company as Coda. So okay. we've got this uh, tap, uh, this flap, this alveolar lateral flap. In Japanese, do we also have an alveolar tap in Japanese? Uh, uh, I think so. I think we can. I'm going to yes. follow the link to uh, Japanese phonology and see what Wikipedia tells me. They are still showing just the... Okay, that's interesting. And I wonder if there are allophonic variations that are more tappy and less flappy and more medial and less lateral. There seems to be a footnote it does say that to an English speaker's ears, its pronunciation varies between a flapped D or ara, as in American English, buddy, and a flapped L. Buddy, buddy. Ara. Well, I think that our confusion on the subject is a good reminder that a Japanese speaker coming to the American versions or the RP or whatever English versions of R and L is justifiably confused. And the sort of classic, I guess you would say, uh, version of a Japanese accent confuses L and R. They're notoriously difficult for Japanese speakers to get a hold of, just like this one is notoriously difficult for us to get a hold of should we happen to learn Japanese. Exactly. So uh, let us head back if we're we've been following links and headed back to things like Japanese phonology mm-hmm. and alveolar lateral flaps, we need to look at one last flap and that is, or two more retroflex flap and the labiodental flap. Yes. Um, so the retroflex flap uh, happens much more with the underside of the tongue striking the postalveolar or alveolar region 
right? So that we're really, we're really getting the underside of the tongue action. Uh, and that, that whip-like action I talked about before is uh, felt really strongly in this situation. Um, and uh, for me, I always think of Urdu when I mm-hmm. think of this, particularly the retroflex tends to connect with Hindi or, or Urdu. And it does certainly occur in um, both Hindi and Urdu. Yes. Now, you were playing around with the Swedish one, the word for blade. And it's the same as in Norwegian, according to this chart here. So let me see if I can do... This is the word for blade, and it's spelled B-L-A-D, and it is bra, bra, bra. It's very difficult for me to not move it into a trill uh, and to keep the retroflexion of it. I also really get it when I try to do this bra, bra, but put a B in front of it, blah, the L sound seems to come out when I put a B in front of it. So there's yes. some acoustic effect of having the lips closed beforehand that makes a retroflex flap sound L-ish. Yes, and uh, make sure that you're making your tongue wide enough, that you're not just stroking with the center tip of your because tongue. Because we need to have a momentary closure of the entire airstream. Exactly. And if you just hit the center, then you're going to get that lateral release, which will make it sound more elish. Now, interestingly enough, Norwegian and Swedish represented in their spelling, in their orthography, with an L. So perhaps that's appropriate for Norwegian and and Swedish. Certainly we could imagine that historically, since it looks like the word blade, that there was a word previously that had... that that stayed L in German. That's, I don't actually know if the word blade is, is the same in German. It certainly stayed the same in English. And I believe that the, what's implied by this chart is that Swedish, outside of this dialect variation, still uses an L. So it's a, an allophonic variation on L. Uh, and, okay. and remember when we get to the retroflex approximate, that there's another similar allophonic variation. Right. So the, the, in terms of our use as coaches for people, it, it's more likely to happen in, of course, if we're doing coaching foreign language words, place names, things like that. Uh, but uh, in certain language groups, in certain consonant settings, right? Absolutely. This... I think what we have to say with this one is, uh, if you do have to use this sound in a foreign language, in a foreign word, or maybe in an accent of that foreign language, that's a pretty rare occurrence. But the the act of thinking about it and working on it and getting your mouth to do it is has a salutary effect. That You're increasing your linguistic and your articulatory awareness by doing the work. So yeah. that's why it's worth doing. Um, in uh, So our next thing is to talk about the labiodental flap, which is probably the most recent mm-hmm. addition to the IPA in that it is, uh, uh, was added to the, the alphabet in 2005. And it uh, really it kind of combines the R hook to the right with a V because it's made with your upper teeth and your lower lip just like a V. So, to my ear, it doesn't sound like an allophone of R. 
does it does, no, it does no. It to you, does and, it? And you could say oh. that that's because there's, there isn't another articulation in the tongue that causes that third form of lowering. Whereas on the other ones, in order to do the action, you're using your tongue and you're probably bunching it up somehow that makes it sound slightly arish. In this one, alba, alba, the tongue can be anywhere it wants to be. And so that R quality isn't part of it. So I wouldn't class this one as part of the rhotics. Uh, it's a heck of a cool symbol, though, and you can follow it up and see a video of a native speaker. Uh, it's a really extreme sound. I was really surprised when I saw it because the lip gets curled all the way under the tooth. But we should leave that one alone and get back to the land of R. And we want to now talk about what is probably most common to most English speakers, and that's the alveolar approximant. Indeed. Uh, approximants, as we've already said, are always voiced. Uh, they are not a close enough closure to make friction, but they are a close enough closure to make turbulence. I think I probably could have said that better, but we have talked about approximants before. You know, uh, it's actually you're you're misspeaking oh, there. A turbulent uh, is narrows the vocal tract, but it doesn't produce turbulence. If it produces turbulence, that's a uh, that's what I intended so to say. Yeah. Okay. So so yes, indeed. If I were to say, that's a that's a fricative. Yes. Whereas er really just distorts the the airstream to the point where we get that third form. And the description of it is alveolar. We should take that seriously first and say Mm. uh, the tip of the tongue approximates the alveolar ridge or it's sometimes called post-alveolar. So a little bit back of there. That makes sense. And if I do nothing else, that is to say, I don't do anything with the back of my tongue. Run, run, run. It's sort of barely an R, it seems to me, and not the way most people actually pronounce it in those languages that have it. Would you agree with that? Um, uh, yeah, I I would. The um, you know the Wikipedia page that we're working from lists alveolar and retroflex approximate, mm-hmm. and uh, if we follow their link about retroflexion, they say this interesting thing that. It's sort of retroflex, but it's not... Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be retroflex. <laughs> um, that when they say retroflex, they're sort of saying post-alveolar. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that the the curling doesn't have to be sub-apical. In other words, the underside of the tongue is closest to the roof of the mouth. Uh, they're saying it could be apical with the point of the tongue or laminal with the tongue tip down. Um, and... To me, those lead us into other areas of our uh, approximation. Yeah, I I copied and pasted from an article. This is the Shibboleth article. uh, A quote from somebody named Lass, L-A-S-S. I'm finding his first name now. Roger Lass. uh, And the article that I'm going to be quoting is Velar R and the History of English. Here we go. He describes uh, the 
are in Old, Middle, and Early Modern English as a multifocal bundle of components, each of them responsible for the observed effects. I think that's really, I love that multifocal bundle, because in fact, the phoneme R that we're most familiar with certainly contains a lot of possible influences. And when we talk about the alveolar approximant, there's more at work than merely the tongue tip approximating the alveolar ridge, or even post-alveolarly. Uh, and let's talk about what some of those components are. Maybe labialization? Yes. For many, for many English speakers, the alveolar approximant is going to be accompanied by lip rounding or the corners of the lips coming forward. Sure. And velar or even uvular approximation, so a velarization, that is to say the tongue bunching towards the velum. And this reminds us of dark yes. L. When we had our conversation on laterals, we talked about dark L. And so in f many people's speech, dark L and dark R, if you will, have a lot in common. Er, that pulled back near the velum, making a very dark, rich kind of sound. Uh, this, um, again, the article I just quoted talks a little bit further about las, uh, and uh, this is a summary here. The chief articular com articulatory component of this consonant, r, is an approximant that roughly corresponds to the high central vowel, e, which las describes as velar, which is not quite accurate and potentially confusing. The actual articulation can be described as pre-velar, or depending on one's preferred terminology, as retracted, palatal, mid-palatal, or central. Now, we'll get back in a moment to that kind of R as related to retroflex R, but there is some component of the back of the tongue rising, and certainly of the sides of the tongue closing off the airflow by bracing against the molar. Uh, in fact, I have a, another quote. I'm sorry I'm Mr. Quotey today, but I have to do something about all these bookmarks. Phil McQuotey. Exactly. Uh, this is from, it's my favorite title of a book, Correction of Defective Consonant Sounds. It's a black cover. It's horrifying. And it's it an is. older book. Formation. This is of the consonant R. The point of the tongue, wide and thin, is raised toward the teeth ridge, but instead of completing the contact, the point is turned slightly backwards, forming a hollowed space just behind the tip. The sides of the tongue are spread to form, uh, to form contact with the upper side gums or molars, thus preventing the voice stream from escaping into the cavity of the cheeks and directing its outflow over the upturned point of the tongue. The voice in its outward passage strikes against the cupped tip of the tongue, setting it into vibration. The teeth are slightly apart, the lips are laxed, but tend to approach the position of the adjacent vowel. The soft palate is raised, the vocal cords are made to vibrate. So that seems to me to be describing post-alveolar at least, if not yes. slightly retroflected, and, a, and perhaps an approximate narrow enough to be causing some turbulence, so it's starting to become a fricative. Exactly. And last week I read from uh, Warman's Practical Orthoepy the description of 
are as a rough sound. Yes. And this seems to be something that is at least pointed to in corrective books, books that are trying to teach people the proper R, and that is to approach some kind of fricative version of r, r, r. When When I went to theater school in London in the 80s, uh, my RP teacher taught me to make a fricative lip-rounded R, r red. Uh, I'm over-lengthening it. It should be briefer than that, but red with a significant lip rounding and significant uh, f- uh, fricativity. Fricativity. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, that was an interesting thing for me, and uh, I quite enjoyed it. Actually, it felt very lusciously buzzy and uh, round. That, that helped round and round the rugged rock. And, you know, it was very easy to slip into a zh kind of sound. Uh, yes, well, I had to kind of retroflex a little bit more so that it was less zh-like. So the question is, if that's not the way most people pronounce this sound in English, and I, I, that's an assumption, why would a speech teacher teach somebody to do that sound? So to me, it was a hyper R that it was a more extreme, emphatic, if you will, form, sort of the uh, RP equivalent of the trill. And uh, that that uh, the assumption was that we might soften away from that, but uh, that in our, its extreme form we might go there. And and I think that's absolutely right. That that it, I, I would certainly say it's worth practicing that round the rough and rugged rock uh, I think sometimes people teach speech with these false targets and then make an assumption that people will relax their way back into something that's useful. Uh, I would rather teach both articulations and, and play with them. Yeah, I, I like the idea of sort of a, a rainbow uh, hmm. or, um, you know, the color wheel that you might have a, on a computer screen mm-hmm. that uh, you start with an extreme and then head to another extreme, perhaps a lack of our coloring um, uh, or more velarization. So you could start with a, a, a approximate that's not very velarized and then and darken it up and see what that happens that, to me, that's kind of fun play. Absolutely. And I think that one reason, if people who are teaching speech prefer a more alveolar focus to the more back focus, which we haven't gotten to yet, they're going to want to teach that very strong reach towards the alveolar position to sort of draw people's tongues away from the area they don't want them to go. Hmm. Uh, but we can get to that in a moment. I do want to mention that there's a more fricative version of this that's apparently used in Czech. Ah, yes. Uh, and and it can come out of the trill too, right? So they, they start with a trill, and it becomes yeah. a little tighter. And the, the transcription that I've seen used for that is... Uh, a high, uh, a thumbtack is what I'm uh, calling it, a diacritic, which is uh, two perpendicular lines. I guess I'm having a failure of description So like here. a tiny capital letter T. Yes. And but it's upside the, down. That's right. <laughs> uh, it points upward is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, so this symbol, 
points upward and it indicates that the rec- uh, sorry the alveolar approximate is being made higher up and that moves it into the fricative range so that we get a r sound which is used in polish and apparently has an allophonic variation which is the unvoiced r i'm double checking here on the rhotix page which i seem to have lost here that there's a, a Czech version. No, I, I'm sure that that is correct. Czech. They, uh, the, Czech, the Czech people write it with an R with a Hacek over, which looks like a little V exactly. above it. Yeah. Not to be confused with the Brev, which you would use in a diphthong. Right. Um, so going back to our alveolar approximants, mm-hmm. we were talking about sort of an alveolar approximant without much velarization. And... Uh, and then we were talking about the possibility of that velarization being very strong. And, um, you know, I find with my students in North America that frequently this uh, approximant, wherever it's made, is sort of splits half and half, that some of my students have an alveolar approximant and, and the other half have this other thing, which has been called, oh, all sorts of different names. But the name that I think we typically call it is a a molar R or a braced R. And do you think this is the right time to talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's first, though, talk about the retroflex version and kind of get it out of the way. Oh, okay. Uh, So there is definitely on that Wikipedia page uh, a link to another page, which is about, uh, about the retroflex approximate. Yes. Uh, retroflexion just means bending back. So the tip of the tongue is pointing up towards the palate. And the approximation is sort of all around in there. Er, er, er. And I can make my approximate... Let me see if I can just do a range of them from the alveolar position to the retroflex position. So I'll move through a post-alveolar position. Ra, 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 ra. All of those are are possible in there, and the retroflex version is, is certainly used. It's used in several languages. Do you happen to have the Wikipedia page there? I do. They have examples of Mandarin, uh, Anindilyagua. I've never heard of that one before. <laughs> um, Malayalam, uh, Brazilian Portuguese, uh, Tamil, which you say is pronounced Tamar. Tamar, yeah. So it has uh, that and, very sound at the end. Right. And then uh, Yagan or Yagan, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Uh, they have a word for cave, which is waro. So uh, not, a, not a huge long list. Yes. And, and not languages that are particularly uh, common. Right. Uh, now, they're suggesting that American English uses it for words like red. And you can see um, also they've put a little labialization mark over it. Yes. Red. 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 I can certainly imagine that being the realization in some speakers. Yes. And so it's imp- and I would imagine that the person who wrote up this page does it that way. Um, <laughs> often I feel like Wikipedia is modified to reflect the pronunciation of the person writing the article. Well, I, I um, wouldn't limit that to Wikipedia. I think that most phoneticians and dialecticians uh, are caught in the trap of uh, 
linguistic phenomenology. They look inside themselves and see what's going on, and then they assume that that's the way everybody does it. And I would actually point the finger more at people like ourselves, voice and speech teachers, yes. who are much more likely to source themselves as the expert than a linguist who might do a study and actually do an acoustic test or actually use some kind of tool to measure exactly what the tongue is doing. And I, I have to um, say that even though there's been a lot of confusion in the past about this group of sounds, these approximate versions of R, doing some research, people have written and they've been slowly laying out grid lines on this knowledge and making it clearer. I, I, I think that's true, yeah. Um, I just want to point out to people, uh, we, we talked very briefly about this diacritic mark of labialization, mm -hmm. which looks like a little superscript W. Yeah. And the I think the only problem with that superscript W is that that leads to people saying something that sounds like rewed. Um, and all it is is ad lips onto the R articulation that we're discussing. Exactly. And, and not add a W to the sound. Um, that, and and that sometimes it, it kind of bugs me. I kind of like the the half ring symbol mm -hmm. that goes underneath uh, the diacritic that's sort of a, a, a backwards C as a sign for lip rounding instead of this yeah. uh, labialization symbol because that W makes me think of people saying rued. Um, I think that's important. There, there are some symbols that are in the same spot that are about how plosives are exploded, the nasal right. plosion symbol, the lateral plosion symbol, the aspiration symbol. And those are talking about how you get out of the sound. But labialization, velarization, those symbols are talking about another articulation in the sound. So a co-articulation. Exactly. And, and really, if the IPA was being completely rational, they would make that clear. Yeah. Okay, let's get back on our journey here. Yes. We're, we've talked about retroflex approximants. Mm -hmm. Now we need to talk about this molar bracing R. Exactly. Um, and, and there is sort of a... We talk about uh, laminal of the, the front blade of the tongue mm -hmm. doing a certain kind of action. And I have seen this uh, represented in an article as uh, the upside-down R, which we haven't talked about yet, the alveolar approximate symbol is an upside-down lowercase r. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a turned r. It's right. fallen forward onto its head, so the main hook of it is now pointing to the left and is on the bottom. Right. If you're learning to draw this for the first time, the best way to do it is to think of yourself writing the lowercase u, but you start down at 7 o'clock on the clock face and then finish the u with the upstroke to the right and then a, a vertical stroke downward. Yes, and it's important to make sure that, the, that you don't make two even hooks on either side because then it really looks like a sort of script I or some other such thing. Yes. So, yes, we have that turned R. And that's the alveolar approximant. The retroflex approximant looks like what we just did, but instead of just ending the regular downward stem, we continue that stem below and then hook to the right as we do with all retroflex symbols. So yeah. that it's sort of like a backwards J in a way, yeah. that stem. Yeah. The, uh, uh, f the final idea here is this 
if one was to use more of a laminal, in other words, not the front edge of the tongue approaching the gum ridge, but the top surface of the tongue, and maybe even the front edge staying behind the lower front teeth, uh, we would... we would have to make the R further back, and there probably would be some velarization going on. And that the symbol for uh, laminal articulation is a little box that goes underneath. So uh, uh, an open square that sits underneath the upside-down or turned R, if you will, uh, would give you a laminal um, articulation. And I've seen that used for this... Uh, molar braced R so as another way of writing it. Let, let's talk about what the f- features of this R are, uh, what the multifocal bundle of R is. There may or may not be a labial component, R, 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 red, red, red. I would yeah. say that that probably doesn't have much acoustic impact. If it does, then we're talking about another R, which we'll get to. Well, I, I'll comment on that in a minute. Right. Let's let's talk about the rest of it. There is a bracing of the sides of the tongue against the molars, hence molar R. Or... The upper molars, yes. is that right, yes. Phil? I mean, let's try to do the lower ones. <laughs> That's causing me a little bit of confusion. I don't think confusion. it's possible. Uh, there's a raising of the midline of the tongue towards the velum or the uvula. There may even be some tongue root retraction. Yes. And I'm not saying that all those components are all together in one configuration to make this sound. But I am saying that there's uh, a multifocal bundle of articulations and a certain acoustic quality that makes me hear... Round the rough and rugged rock, the ragged rascal ran. The R that I use pretty much everywhere. So it, it it's not the R that I use pretty much everywhere. To me, it's a, a, a complicated dance to get my tongue to do this. It does sort of feel like a wad of tongue in the back of my mouth yeah. to me. Um, and uh, so that... That is a significant difference between my form of speech and your form of speech. I would, however, say that there is an overlapping cloud of articulations that, mm. if I'm being honest, there's, there are some times when I have more alveolar approxima- approximation and less bunching. Uh, and I think that probably my set of R's overlaps with your set of R's. I, I agree. Um, the... Uh, the comment that I held back on comes out of my exploration of this R when I was writing an article, an article. Mm-hmm. With, which was published uh, in the Voice and Speech Review. Which you were the uh, associate editor yeah. for the phonetic section on that issue. And I co-authored an article with Paul Meyer. And... Uh, near the end of the article, we talk about the molar R, and w- one of the things we did was a little acoustic study of making a molar R with no lip rounding and then a molar R adding lip rounding. And we found that adding lip rounding helped to suppress the third format to make it seem more R-like. So what, it is possible to make a, a, 
molar R without lip rounding, it's perceived as more R-ish by adding lip rounding to it. And just in the sort of informal asking my students who does what, uh, and they have to sort of self-identify as having a molar R, all of my students that I have who make molar R's use uh, lip corner fronting advancement, um, lip rounding, as um, a little bonus to help it make it seem a little bit more R-like. But would you, That's my experience. Would you say that students who you might identify as having a more alveolar focus can be identified by the fact that they don't do the lip I rounding? I can't because about half of them add a little bit of lip rounding onto their alveolar articulation. So um, that's what makes me uh, think that the lip rounding is uh, is a, a, a hidden feature of the articulation. That is to say, it's not hidden to view, but it doesn't have really much impact on the sound. Well, it it does have some impact. It definitely has some, and it I think it may partly be associated with the way we teach R to our children. Mm-hmm. That uh, R, R is one of those sounds that we model for our children in a more conscious way because children learn it later. Because it's harder and to so, figure out. Harder to figure out, harder to see how it's being mm-hmm. done. And, uh, and so in order to model it for our children, we're more likely to add lip rounding so that they can see that we're doing something uh, and it also, in our sort of hyper-correct pronunciation, it's going to make it slightly more, even if it's only fractionally, slightly more R-ish to our own ears. And so in the same way, if you ask someone to say E in an extreme way, they're going to p- pull their lip corners back towards their mm-hmm. ears, E, uh, and then, but most of the time when we say E, we don't pull our lip corners back at all. We don't need to do that, but we will if we're trying to be extreme. Similarly, an extreme R, people will go r, r, and sort of make that kiss-like action. So that's my take on it. It, it may be just a little fanciful theory I, I've made I up. I think it's but... really interesting, and it, it prob- probably deserves more study, and not introspective study, but in study of, of people and how they're really using it in in regular speech. Be- and Frankly, I would love to see a study that's done in a number of different places, somewhere in the western United States, where I think it's more likely that we would get molar R, somewhere like the UK, where we might have very very little molar R, if any, and maybe someplace like uh, somewhere in Australia, where I don't know what they're going to have. Again, though, I think we're going to have some trouble just classing which ones are molar R's and which ones are alveolar R's, because I think that... Ah, uh, but you have to use ultrasound. You cool. use an ultrasound and put a... I, I did a little study. I went I went and visited a, a, a speech lab, a speech-language pathology lab, and they were using a portable ultrasound machine to teach kids with cleft palate how to articulate. And I thought, wow, look at this little cool device. It was a portable ultrasound and they stuck it into the tongue root underneath the chin. And you could totally see the action of the tongue in a beautiful way. It was looked very similar to one of those uh, cross-section diagrams that we see of the tongue in action. I need to get me one of them. Yeah. 
I, I thought, wow, look at that. I think it cost about $3,000 new. But they had a used one that they got from a, you know, an, a, a clinic that had updated its equipment. And uh, I bet you could find a used portable ultrasound well, on eBay or something. Until that time, I really I challenge everybody who's listening in your own work and as you observe other people to try to tease apart the aspects of this are that are about tongue position and the aspects that are about lip position. We also have a little bit of a problem here in terms of our symbology. Uh, that is that the R, the alveolar approximant R has a symbol, the turned R. And the retroflex approximant has a symbol, which we've discussed. But the R that is not particularly alveolar and that we might call molar or braced doesn't have a symbol. Uh, I think that this might be because the symbols were assigned before a lot of really clear thought had gone into how they differed. And there have been various proposals for the molar R. Uh, let's go through a few of them. Uh, one is the Joch or Joch uh, symbol, which sort of looks like a a cursive. It looks a lot like an edge. Yeah, exactly. It? Which is, I think, makes, makes it a bad candidate. I agree. Uh, the the one that Eric Singer proposed was sort of a a Janus R, a two faced R that had hooks going. Still turned, but hooks at the bottom going both to the left and to the right. So uh, I, I like your term, a Janus one. He called it an anchor. So it had a hook to the left for the regular alveolar, and then its mirror image an anchor. to the right. <laughs> he also had the clever idea of having additional hooks on the right to show the degree of bunching. Uh, so that you could have er, 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 represented by how many hooks there were. I don't think that's ever going to be adopted. There was one proposed by Raymond Hickey, uh, which was a, and this was for Irish linguistics, the turned R, but with a bar through it. Right. And that's similar, in a way, to the velarized L. Exactly. But he put a bar and not a tilde. Exactly. And the bar is an alternative velarization symbol that could be used for the L as well. They're currently... Right. Uh, that's, I think, what Paul Meyer and I advocated was the velarization symbol. And I tend to use the, the bar because I can't get the velarization to symbol, symbol to go over the bar of the R in computer phonetics. And so, right, it ends up sort of sitting on top of the And eye. so I use the strike-through, uh, you know, the. it's not part of the... It's a hyphen, essentially, isn't it? Yes, but I'm essentially, uh, you know, you can format, that's the word I'm looking for, format the symbol as bold, italic, underline, or strike-through. Ah, right. And okay. so I just format it as strike-through, and it tends to land right on top of the bar. Nice. Um, the other possibility is that one could use the diacritic that looks like a little glottal stop, does it not? Uh, yes, for pharyngealization, right? Pharyngealization um, that would in, I imply a, a certain 
velarization. Wait, is that right, or is it the? Uh... I, I I think it's the the one that looks like a, a. Is it a backwards question mark? Let's see if I can find my chart here. Yeah, because there there are these uh, diacritics. Uh, there's the velarization symbol. Ah, uh, right. Which is the what is that? A lambda. Uh, show it to me. It looks like a V. Oh, sorry. I have to switch back to Skype. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding up the IPA chart to Phil. Can you see Phil? Yes, I can. Yes, velarization is the R sound. Ara, ara, uh, which is That's like the... a V that loops underneath the line. Yes, it's a Greek letter, but I can't remember the name of what it is. It's... I think it's gamma. Oh, gamma. Oh, that would uh, make sense. Or it's related to so gamma. So like, it's like a baby gamma, but it's made to be a superscript. Yes. So, yeah, that would work. Uh, whether things are, are palatalized, velarized, or pharyngealized kind of doesn't quite capture what we're talking about. But the symbol that's used for velar L, velarized L, is a separate kind of symbol. It's the tilde. And this, a very similar thing is happening with the R. Um, I just found something on Wikipedia that um, speaks to the little W, superscript W. Um, mm -hmm. Under velarization on Wikipedia, it has three points. It suggests that a tilde or swung dash could be used, a superscript gamma, could be used, which we've just described, or a superscript W. Uh, it indicates either simultaneous velarization and labialization, as mm. in swa uh, or pa, or labialization of a velar consonant, as in qua. Because um, the W is a labial velar. Exactly, exactly. And huh. if you're adding lip rounding and velarization, then that superscript W would be appropriate. And that, uh, uh, I had not realized that that could be part of that. Yeah. I, I, I still think that to the casual reader, it suggests a path we don't want them to take. I agree. I agree. But that's perhaps why it's being used. So the question often comes up, when I'm teaching people about all these variations, well, which one do I want to do? And which, how should I transcribe? Which this? one's right, Phil? Which one's exactly. right? Exactly. No, no, which one's right? And the question is, right for what? Yes. And I do think it's valuable to be accurately transcribing the way an American is speaking something, if it's distinct from the way an RP speaker is, is doing it. So if I'm saying run or run, I, I think there's a difference in velarization, and I really ought to indicate that. Yeah. I might be using a much more simplified version of transcription, and that, that's fine. What bugs me kind of, though, is when, and this has come up on Vastavox before, when presenting this dilemma, the, the response of some people is, just use a retroflex symbol. It's fine. It's close enough. Blah, blah. Americans do whatever. And one, as a speech person interested in specificity, whatever is not a good answer. Second, as an American, uh, 
I, I, I'm trying to find a non-foul way of saying my response to that. Uh, back off. Uh, <laughs> I, my articulation is as legitimate as your articulation. Uh, and so give me a symbol, I guess, is my uh, childish Call me a frickin' symbol. Exactly, for Pete's sake. Yeah. Uh, and And don't... That's why I object to the retroflex symbol being indiscriminately used for all American speech. Because it ain't. Indeed. You know, I find when I edit these things, I say the word indeed awful, an awful lot. I have to say, yes, you're right. Uh-huh. Um, you could just the... say certainly <laughs> as well. That's the other one I overuse. Yep. So <laughs> going back to this want for a symbol, um, I think the problem is, A, that we, we're not a very powerful group. Mm -hmm. I don't think many of us are actual members of the International Phonetic Association. No, I'm not. And we don't go to the conferences, and we don't make present papers, and we don't argue that we need a symbol. And uh, I, we'll never get a symbol if we don't argue for one. Yeah, and, you know, the, one of the principles of the IPA is the phonological principle, which is that if it's a phoneme, it gets a symbol. Uh, that we shouldn't be indiscriminately throwing new symbols on allophonic realizations. Yes. However, uh, quite so, a few people use a different variety of this R, and it it may be allophonic within English, but between dialects, there is a distinct sound. So if the extra uh, tail on the anchor as... Uh, Eric Singer's proposed symbol um, could be thought of as a diacritic. Uh, so a molarization or something mm -hmm. um, that uh, that would be allowed because then we would just have the alveolar approximant with an add-on. Um, and so the uh, phoneme symbol would just be the alveolar approximant and the... Um, the diacritic would just be an add-on to that. So that would be acceptable to the IPA. I believe that we may have covered all of the... We have one more, and that's the uvular fricative. We've sort of talked about it mm -hmm. in talking about uvular trill. So uh, this is uh, um, important, I think, because um, particularly for French we get this ra-ra-ra sound. Mm -hmm. um, and the symbol for that is a flipped uh, uh, R. So it's, the, uh, it's not a turned uh, small cap or small capital R. It's a flipped one. It's like it's uh, fell over on itself. Yeah, the straight uh, side is still on the left and the rounded side is still on the right. Indeed. Yes, it is. It looks a little bit lower, like a lowercase b, with a diagonal line coming out of the top of the belly of the bee. Wow, I have always resist. I think that I have never thought about that because I didn't want to think about it as a different kind of symbol. <laughs> <laughs> but that's absolutely true. Uh, and uh, that uh, voiced uvular fricative um, happens in other languages, of course, um, but probably a, a French accent is the the most common place that you would get it. It would come up in German and Dutch, mm -hmm. um, you know, but then 
Swedish and all sorts of other things. Um, yes, when you're doing your Inuktitut uh, dialect, <laughs> it would definitely come up. Maroc. Um, uh, that's one of the delights. I probably mentioned it on Glossonomy before that I I can play with you know channel surf and find the Inuktitut channel of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, <laughs> CBC, and listen to them do the news. And it you know it sounds a lot like that improv of Omnish. Mm -hmm. uh, where they throw in English language words. Yes, exactly. Because they're speaking Inuktitut, which to me, I don't un can't decipher a single word out of it. And then occasionally they'll throw in Apple computer. Um, <laughs> in an otherwise Canadian accent. In an, well, no, it'll be in an Inuktitut accent. It will definitely have an uh, Inuktitut accent. So uh, uh, getting back to this fricative... Yeah. Uh, r, 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 at the back, it it I think it's probably the easiest sound. You know, there are people who can't make a r trill at the back, but mm -hmm. they can make a, a r fricative, uh, yes. and that is uh, often helpful. I've worked on uh, plays trying to do uh, French pronunciations of place names and character names. And uh, many of the actors can't do a, a uvular trill, but they can do a uvular fricative. And so uh, that ultimately is a lifesaver. There's another place where this sound is used, and that's in, uh, uh, in the north of England. Uh, it's the Northumbrian burr, mm -hmm. uh, the, the sound that allegedly Hotspur uh, made for R. So... Round the rough and rugged rock, and I think it's probably no longer really used. I think I might have mentioned this last time that I did hear a guy uh, using this, but he was using it uh, labialized, mm. uh, which I I don't think we want to get into today. Perhaps we should uh, labialization, but. Uh, yeah, I bet there's a Wikipedia page on the Northumbrian burr. There is indeed Northumbrian burr. Um, Northumber Northumberland, Tyneside, or Geordie, and County Durham. So I, I've heard only a very few examples of this, and I am under the impression that it's on its way out, that it's less and less common. I also think that the story behind it, that it was Hotspur's way of speaking, is probably not reliable. It's just a cool story. Uh, but it's interesting. It's at least nice to look at it and say, well, that, yeah, that's an English pronunciation. Uh, it's not just a French or a German pronunciation. Right. And the, uh, the uh, comment uh, in the uh, Wikipedia page is that not only does it involve this... Uh, lip rounding, it also tends to affect vowels that precede it. So uh, a word like word would tend to be more like word, word. Uh, so it would pull the sound back towards that uvular articulation. Which so makes... birds become birds, worms, worms. And that's what we spoke about at the beginning, that there's always some co-articulation, co some bleeding of one segment into another. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, have do we got any to... other R's to cover? Well, I think that we ought to do the labiodental approximant. Mm. 
Although it's kind of a big topic. Do you want to save it for next time? Um, we could, because it, uh, you know, sometimes characterized as a weak R, mm-hmm. and uh, next time we're going to talk about vowel R, and so it might serve as a sort of uh, bridge between the two episodes. You must be in academia to come up with such a delightful segue as that, uh, because that sounds almost plausible, like we even <laughs> planned it. All right. Uh, so uh, that brings us to the end of our episode, uh, I believe. And so I want to remind people about our new Facebook page. Have you been since we made it last week? I did. We have a few more people on there. And uh, I have written on it that I ought to come up with something to write on it. <laughs> That's been my contribution <laughs> so far. Well, I'll have to contribute in some way or contribute, as you say. Um, and uh, we'll we'll find a way to make that even more useful. So our Wikipedia page... Uh, no, uh, our, we don't have a Wikipedia page. Someone has to make us one because we're not allowed to make our own. Did you yes. know that? I, so I had assumed. So, uh, but our Facebook page... Uh, please check us out on that. Check us out on iTunes and give us a little review. And, uh, of yes, course, if you're, you're not in the United States, then we need your review because uh, the U.S. has reviews, but Canada, the U.K., does not have reviews. And now, to be honest, I went looking for the U.K. review page, and I'm not sure whether iTunes in the U.K. has a review page. I'm not sure that it's possible in the it UK may be do it. that you're being restricted from it. Because it's possible. But uh, if you're in the UK and you can review us, well, then please do. Indeed. Um, and the reason for that is because people who aren't on Vastavox or, or who don't know us from other places, they can find us through iTunes. If they search for linguistics or speech or accents, they will find us through iTunes. And mm-hmm. so a review would help people to find our show. There's one more thing that I want to just mention. It occurred to me the other day that I had not really made a plug for the the work that I do with Dudley Knight, and I'll keep this really brief. We do workshops in speech, and it's called KT Speechwork. You can go to ktspeechwork.com and find information about it. And uh, earlier you mentioned Omnish, and that's sort of what we do. Uh, So... Anybody who wants to take a workshop, you can find information on that page and come and join us. And uh, and that's it. Sounds like fun. That's in New York next summer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We're doing a, a beginning one, an introduction, and then we're also doing our first certification of people who've done, who've taken two of the workshops already. So we're moving forward and trying to get more information out there. And uh, I probably have used the knowledge I've gained through that to contribute to this show. So uh, there's there's some sort of connection between those two. Well, thank you, Phil. And uh, a reminder, if people want to contact us, our email is glossonomia at gmail.com. And we'll probably be back with another episode in 10 or so days. It takes us about a week and a half to create one of these. So I look forward to talking with you again soon, Phil. Indeed. I just said it. Indeed. So do I. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.